Welcome to an episode of Leah and the Internet. I hope you enjoy the show. Leah and the Internet features rotating guests who discuss the impact the Internet has on the world. So who's Leah Devin Sorrentino? I'm an artist, currently living in Minneapolis. For episode 21, I'm joined by longtime friend, writer, and podcast host, Courtney Algio. The two of us discuss our past experiences with chat roulette and pre-online dating, while we try to determine if the Internet's making everybody mean. Courtney! Algio, hi. Hi, Leah. We got to make this quick because you want to be in bed by ten, but so nine forty-five maybe. <laughs> okay, okay. We that's that's pushing it. <laughs> Courtney, why don't you tell the abnormal amount of listeners that I have something about yourself? I'm a human being who enjoys TV and movies much more than I think I ever enjoyed books. But don't tell <laughs> any of my English literature professors from the days of yore that secret. I'm sorry if you're listening. (laughs) Professor Newman. Yeah. (laughs) And I use that love of movies to host a podcast called Double Exposure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And where can people find you online, find your podcast online, anything else about your identity online? You know, it's funny. If you Google me, there are all sorts of different things that you can find out about me. But like old websites I used to have, things I used to write. Uh, but there's not one central location for me anymore. But you can find the podcast uh, at doubleexposuremn.com and listen to our episodes about comparing two movies using a rubric. So we're going to date ourselves really quickly, not actually go on dates, but talk about how old we are. <laughs> and uh, because we both remember the inception and then downfall of, a, of an internet site called Chat Roulette, which actually is still online. You can go to Chat Roulette. It looks like it was still made in 2006 or seven. It looks it like it was still truly, in fact, made by a 17-year-old Russian kid. Yeah. Uh, and for those of you who are too young or were not brave enough to go to Chat Roulette, how it worked, which was inspired by Russian Roulette in the movie Deer Hunter, <laughs> which is kind of upsetting knowing that it eventually became a perv haven, But chat roulette is where you could start chatting with somebody through like video, kind of like Skype. And uh, depending on the person, you could immediately click a button and get another random human from around the world. Or you can continue a conversation that may or may not involve a dick pic. Or I guess it's a dick video in that sense. Uh, Sometimes it's just a request for tits. (laughs) In a different language. Yeah, it's just like written on like a piece of cardboard. My first experience with chat roulette was I I actually, with a previous guest on this podcast and my best friend that I talk about often, Harold Burnett, he controlled the computer and I would tell him hit the button. And (laughs) the minute a guy would see me either expose himself or uh, ask me to expose myself, or then they would see Harold because I would pan over and they would just immediately click away yes. from us. One person from Germany talked to us for 15 minutes until he eventually pulled his wiener out. Oh, naturally. But like a, like a no. regular conversation about music. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh. I mean, I'm sure it was like, what's that? what was that German band? Like Rammstein? <laughs> what was the Duhast song? Oh, yeah, that was Rammstein. Yeah. yeah. Now, now you're really dating yourself. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember that song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, either. Not at all. No, I'm not. Certainly don't put it on every mix I make for all my ex-boyfriends. So, so what was your first experience with chat roulette? 
You know, that's a really great question. There was a time that I think my husband was like out at night all the time. And something I used to really like to do is just like go out and spin the wheel and go into bars and talking to people. And so I heard about chat roulette and I was like, you know, I could talk to somebody in like the Netherlands or something. And at the time I didn't realize it was such a dick haven. (laughs) Um, Or hell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And I mean, I found out pretty quickly but I actually ended up making a friend that is still to this day my Facebook friend, this guy named Jacob Rossi. And we had struck up a conversation just about movies because I think we were both just like watching movies and not like dirty movies or anything. We were just like watching <laughs> movies while we were doing chat roulette. Um, I ended up talking to him a lot about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which you, if you haven't seen it, you should know that I think like Roger Ebert wrote it. <laughs> and that is shocking that we let that man tell us anything about movies. <laughs> Uh, anyway so and then after that another friend of mine and I like she would come over and we would just try to like play gags on people who were asking for boobs or whatever and you know putting on masks or just like doing stupid stuff yeah Yeah. I think that your story is kind of a metaphor for this entire episode where we're really kind of delving into how the internet has impacted us human being creatures emotionally and To me, Chat Roulette and specifically your story kind of embodies a lot of the things that we talked about before recording. And this idea that it was a place where you could be anonymous, could randomize your interactions, but then also be very perverse and mean and judgmental. How the internet's starting to evolve is how you're still friends with this person from Chat Roulette. Now it's these places where we actually have like meaningful connections and I think that we should talk a little bit more about like the mean side first, either the dark, the dark before the dawn, <laughs> as it were. Well, you know, one thing that really struck me when I was doing chat roulette for those like couple months that I like was really interested in it was that if a picture popped up of a person I didn't think looked interesting. I mean, like just taking away the 80% of like penises that I saw, <laughs> like if I saw someone that just like didn't look interesting, how easy it was to just like hit next. And you don't have to explain to the person anything. You you see each other and you lock eyes. And then I've made an active decision to be like, ah, no, nah, no thanks. I'm out. Um, and that made me, it awoke this sort of darker side of me where I felt like God being like... <laughs> Bloop, you don't exist. I'm squashing your head, you know? Yeah. I remember uh, immediately first being thrilled that I could just, like, make that judgment. But then when somebody would swipe quickly (laughs) off of me, being so emotionally affected by it, like, what was wrong with me? What was it about me that, like, was I not pretty enough? Was I not interesting looking enough? Was it because Harold was peeking his head in? (laughs) Like, what about this? was making it seem like I wasn't worthy to have, to even show your dick to. Yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) yes. And I feel like Chat Roulette showed us a little bit of what life online is like today. But then it also reminded me that I didn't used to feel that way before being able to visibly see somebody online. When I was in chat rooms, when I would go on Prodigy and pay per minute, (laughs) I had no problem lying about my age, where I was located, like my gender, anything. Your, your ASL. My ASL. Like... My ASL was so fluid at the time. <laughs> I, and I remember making up weird things like I'm 5'4". 
Like, why even? I'm five feet tall. Why, <laughs> why lie about those four inches? And I would do it all the time because I thought that it would make me more appealing. And I would say things that I would never say in those spaces. Seeing how I am now where I'm so calculated about like what I put online and how it might affect somebody and how it might make me look. Like there's part of me that I'm happy about the censorship that exists, but then on the other side of not getting to be an asshole <laughs> with no consequences <laughs> is also this, this unique relationship that I feel that our generation has with the internet. Well, and I know this isn't an... An internet thing, but I think it plays into it. Our generation also saw a rise of like reality TV. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about how I felt as God in the chat roulette room, and then I think about how we view people on reality TV shows, it to my mind just shows that this like screen is the buffer. Like that's the thing. Everything we see on screen, we assume is not really happening. It's how we can sort of, you know, divorce ourselves from all the horrible shit that we now see online. And we'll we'll get to that, I'm sure, about how awful the world is in the 24-hour news cycle. I put air quotes around that, by the way. They felt it. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone listening felt the air quotes. (laughs) Or even, like, you know, people who know better who, like, watch horrible porn online. Like, they just, they just, there's this screen buffer because it's not real. And so even when you're interacting one-on-one with another person in chat roulette or in, like, a chat room or in a comments section or saying horrible things about Leslie Jones, who only exists in our mind on a screen, it's just all play, play pretend. There becomes a generational divide, though, Mm -hmm. in terms of who wants to still pretend that these people aren't real, that our actions aren't real online. Assholes. (laughs) But, like, I think that it's it's a, a unwillingness to accept that technology is pervasive in our lives in a way that we are actually not disconnected from. And I think that it's the reason why it goes to such a negative place of, like, hyper-focusing on, like, bullying online, for example, where bullying's been happening since the dawn of time. And in fact, you could make the argument that an internet presence of bullying now catalogs it, creates a record of it, and now exposes for how frequent that this is happening. Because I remember before I could be easily connected to my internet presence, I... I remember being mean to people online. And actively, I, I... Before we started recording admitted that I, at one point in time, I think I created two live journals actually that were like fictitious live journals of like people I made up to spy on other people and say mean things. <laughs> like, and I did this at like 19. Yeah. I was in college. Like I was, I was. But you didn't have your degree yet. So you, we wouldn't call you educated. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was on the, on the verge of education. <laughs> but because I felt powerless in my regular life, and this was an area where I could feel some type of control, that it's interesting how, people act like this screen uh, mediation that you're talking about actually is either like a lack of control of our environment, like all these things are going wrong and the kids on social media, (laughs) they're so, I was listening to uh, NPR earlier today, a principal was on from Central High in St. Paul and she was talking about how they can't control social media bullying. And there was parents calling about how, in my day, we only had to worry about bullying in school. And I'm like, really? Because I remember getting phone calls from sixth grade girls. 
And I remember people's parents at sports games being really malicious yeah. and venomous too. It's just there was no way to prove it or show it at scale. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I do think that the difference between like public and online bullying is I mean, I mean, there are some specific differences. Like I definitely got bullied in the real world in elementary and middle school. But other people saw that, like there were these different types of witnesses. And then I still had a period of time before I got to my room to weep about it, where I could be distracted by any number of things or run into any number of friends who might be like, hey, fuck those guys. But online bullying, like there were definitely times later in high school when I was posting on like the Lancaster County hardcore (laughs) message board (laughs) because I was... Very cool. Because um, there's nothing more hardcore than posting on an <laughs> online message board. How else am I going to hear about all the new Screamo in 1999? Um, and, you know, I remember some anonymous person after a house show to which I wore, like, these turquoise corduroy pants, some anonymous person was like, Courtney wears very ugly pants. <laughs> and that's not even, like, bad bullying, but I'm like, show yourself, Nave. And, like... <laughs> But there was nobody there to be like, hey, those pants, like, immediately, like, to to be like, hey, those pants weren't that bad. It's just a a string of comments about, like, yeah, why would you wear, like, that whale of corduroy to a hardcore show? To go back to where I was talking about the visibility that Chat Roulette provided, which started creating some type of empathy and emotion to the situation of being passed by or being ignored, I think that you're seeing a difference between when the internet was introduced and starting to mimic the way it works today compared to how people can actually stick up for one another in these spaces. You referenced Leslie Jones recently for those living under a rock. (laughs) She was in the new Ghostbusters movie and received a lot of really racist and sexist language and imagery on Twitter to the point where she felt attacked because she was. It wasn't a feeling. It was an actual, I will say it's a fact and a feeling. (laughs) And she tried to expose these people attacking her and that created a more onslaught negative situation to where she left Twitter for a few days, not like deleted her account, but just removed herself from the situation. But the community actually rallied around and one, forced Twitter to do something that they've never done in history, which is ban an account. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and I'll talk more about that later, but also you saw people that it's, these comments are not in these isolated places anymore. You can't be an anonymous user in this online world to make fun of Courtney's corduroy pants. I mean, in play, <laughs> there, there's spaces where you can, but not in prevalent spaces like Twitter, Facebook. It's, it's too difficult to maintain that anonymity that I think perpetuated a lot of the early negativity that existed online. So I will say that I saw an interesting figure today about how in 2007, South Korea tried a thing where they mandated that all websites that had more than 100,000 users were required to use their real names online um, and also give personal information about themselves so that it would get rid of that anonymity. Um, And they did this because there were so many abusive comments and so many horrible things that people were saying. But they ended up changing that because uh, after a while, the negative comments had only declined by 0.9% in a year. Um, and again, but it, like these assholes are going to be assholes no matter what, p- yeah. possibly, right? <laughs> well, I think the problem is, and this is 
Uh, I think you talking about the screen making it seem like we're in fictitious spaces is in reality an online space is a space. And if we think about humans offline, we can be pretty terrible as a species. And a lot of what you see online is just amplified versions, sometimes amplified versions, maybe even one-to-one versions of what we're experiencing offline. Like sexism did not start when the internet like the first person plugged a phone jack into the wall, you know? <laughs> yeah. And racism existed and segregation existed and economic disparity existed and but, fascism and all of these things. But it does give rise to a tool for a community to shout those things down, which sure. doesn't always happen. I mean, I remember recently I had an argument with a friend who I'm no longer Facebook friends with, not over this, but over certain situations like this where you know, we didn't see eye to eye on the use of social media. And she was upset because people were putting like the France flags on their Facebook accounts uh, for just sweet Charlie, right? Mm -hmm. I had made the argument that like, it's kind of ridiculous because the internet, Facebook isn't a real place. And like, go do something real about it, even though doing that is sort of in the same spirit of like a community like community lifting up a certain voice or a certain idea or shouting people down um but she and she made a really good point though she's like the internet is a real place like that's where like the arab spring happened like social media is a, a real thing and i'm definitely showing my generational age and my inability to come to terms with this as a company i know of would say this fidgetal space that blends the physical and the digital so I think it's actually a dangerous position to have to think about these places as not real spaces Mm -hmm. that affect one another because they have created such change and movement. And I mean, like, I remember social media was prevalent in 2012 Olympics. The conversations that are happening about the way women athletes are being treated in 2016 is completely different in the four years. And I think that part of that is the algorithms on my Facebook allow me to see very liberal celebrations. But I think it's also, we as a culture strive for community. And as we're starting to fracture uh, in-person interaction, I think that we're creating spaces online that are starting to foster that community again. And then it, it has to, like you mentioned about like a younger generation, uh, I think you mentioned this before we started recording, actually being growing up online and starting to become the people that they want to be as adults mm-hmm. and shaping these places that are very real to them yeah. to reflect how they want to be as adults. And unfortunately, some adults are still jerks, so it doesn't alleviate all of that. Well, because, you know, as we were talking about, you and I grew up, I mean, I was like maybe 15 or 16 when we got our first computer. And my mom was in her 40s and my brother was in his 20s. And it's like people have entered the age of the internet at all these different ages. And so everybody's sort of trying to catch up with one another about what they think this elephant should be. And it it can be everything to everybody, but it mostly can and should be a tool for good for connection. So... I think that the reason that people can still sometimes view these spaces as anonymous to where they perpetuate some of this negative behavior is it's still 
something like social media is viewed as a novelty and it's not viewed as a tool where there's a younger generation that views it more as a tool or doesn't use it. I mean, like Facebook is not as prevalent to teenagers because it's where their parents are. Like, it's like now like a, a graveyard of watching like my friends get, get married, get <laughs> pregnant and like maybe be on a boat sometimes for a ladies weekend. <laughs> this is, this is the space. And to me, that's all very negative. <laughs> like what kind of cool things would teens be posting the drugs the edm i don't know <laughs> i don't i don't know if snapchat's any indication it's some very interesting short format news I, I like that i'm able to consume more once we figured out that the content needed to be shorter where i'm going with this is trying to apply old rules that worked in the physical world yeah and trying to use those as a parameter for the digital world i think creates some of this tension that we <laughs> experience in those places that's a really, that's a very, very interesting point. Because thinking about like the way that writers, for instance, like an old, like writers of news, old and old practice by today's standards, who would get paid by the word. And so they would intentionally make it like a ton of content that didn't really need to be there. So the idea of like cutting the fat, I think that's interesting. Yeah. But for Snapchat, I mean, I'm interested that you are bringing that up because Snapchat orig- originated as not necessarily a way for, but it became a tool for teens to just snap pictures of their dicks oh, and, and vaginas. I, and, and non-teens. I think that everybody <laughs> was engaging. In, but um, I think the reason that Snapchat became so relevant so quickly is that it, to me, mimics in-person conversation more than any other messaging system. Because when I talk to you in person, it's temporary. Mm-hmm. You can't hold on to it and you can't repeat it and you can't copy and paste it. But now you can do that, do that on Snapchat. So is it like... By choice. Well, but is it also like meeting the needs of a greater number of people? But also Snapchat's not necessarily like a community in the same way. Like, and is there bullying that happens on Snapchat? I think it is a community in the same way since like you can have your Snapchat story, which gives somebody an impression of your day. But you're just and- holding court for like three or four minutes at that point like nobody's really responding to you in sure, concert but you can, so there's a couple of functionalities of snapchat that i think maybe you're not aware of but uh you can have i'm a, not a teen leah you can have a you can have a live feature where people can interact with you live you can do like almost like video facetiming with snapchat yeah. uh within the stories you can actually look at who's viewed your story so you do get that connection of who's had that moment with you and has experienced that and now you have that shared history and then you have the option of the memories which is what you were talking about to create that permanency um but what i also like snapchat for is being able to see like things like I'm talking about the olympics a lot which will be completely irrelevant by the time i (laughs) release this episode But it did create a whole new dimension to that event because Snapchat would allow the athletes to hold essentially their account and you would get to see from the athlete's perspective what the what the Olympics was like. That and then it was aggregated with people who were also there watching. So you got to see the duality of those two spaces at the same time, which created completely new experience to the Olympics. What other point in history did we get to know how Simone Biles, the gymnast, would have felt on the mat? And hearing you talk about it in those terms really 
shows the timeline of our conversation in terms of having flipped it from it being a negative space where you don't have empathy to this tool or Snapchat at least where you get to see something so holy from somebody's somebody else's perspective and, and not really be able to say boo about it except you know hey I had this experience with this person yeah we talked a lot about like the the compression of information and this problem or opportunity of choice and you shared with me an article about the science behind Tinder, mm-hmm. which was uh, artfully put together by MTV.com. <laughs> First, <laughs> didn't know MTV.com wrote articles, so that yeah. was that, I learned yeah. that today. They're becoming long form. What was interesting is, about this article is that it explained that uh, this phenomena of choice is, one, essentially negatively impacting the way that we date or experience dating, and then also this idea that we have this constant choice makes us less likely to have like sticky relationships in terms of the grass is always greener kind of mentality. And thinking about like people being mean, dating sucks. <laughs> dating sucked before the internet. And what this article is proposing is that dating sucks while on the internet, but is now like fundamentally changing the way we view and treat people that we're dating. Yeah, this is a limiting topic for me only because I didn't really... I, I've been married in the age of Tinder. I mean, I definitely dated people on the internet in high school. In fact, from I... Craigslist Post? Well, yes, I did date guys <laughs> from Craigslist Post, which very rarely, I mean, never turned out very great. But I also had a boyfriend in Canada named J.D. Kingsley that I went to visit when I was 17. <laughs> uh, we met on Yahoo Chat. And well, also, it was the same... Time, I grew up in the time of Makeout Club. I used to use MySpace as like a personal dating service, which worked out like gangbusters at first, and then more people got on MySpace and got really crowded. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as somebody who has dated in the world of online dating and has used Tinder prevalently, there were some interesting things that the article brought up, and then some things that I think are maybe a misconception of what it's like to date online. My opinion about Tinder, and I've talked about it before on the podcast, is that it, to me it's the most true to life to dating in terms of would I sleep with you, yes or no? And that's usually the negotiation that you make in your mind before you have an in-depth conversation with somebody while single. <laughs> like whether, whether you all want to admit that or not, <laughs> that's, you know, leave it in the comments of the, the episode. But my shallow ass, that's how it was approached. But what's nice about Tinder, it seems though, and I feel like I've heard especially men talk about this, is that when you enter a bar, it's not guaranteed that everybody is there to potentially engage with somebody in like a sexual or dating manner. But Tinder, like you know that everybody there is at least interested in talking to someone potentially if it's the right fit, right? So there is this implied consent to approachability. Yeah. And what the article kind of goes into is that, and along this topic of like being meaner online, is that the people that you interact with on Tinder, you're more likely to blow off. You're more likely to date multiple people. You're more likely to not be invested in that person because there's just so many options at hand where in real life, if you had to go out and meet people, I guess you must be such a dog person that you couldn't find as many people as you could on the geolocation. Why I find this to be kind of a weak argument is maybe our construct and idea of what it meant to date somebody or what was important about dating 
needed to change. The article was heavily focused on if you're looking to like look for a long-term partner, then these dating sites like Tinder are actually hurting your chances of doing that because you're becoming a person who cannot fathomly be with only one person where it's like, well, maybe not everybody's looking for that. Well, but aren't people, I mean, maybe it's not even an argument anyway, though, because aren't people aren't on Tinder looking to just start a little something? I mean, like, I don't know about you, and this will be uh, another one of my shining moments and where I'm really glad that my mom doesn't know how to download podcasts. <laughs> I don't know how many, I think almost every single one of my relationships, except maybe one, started with a one-night stand or sleeping with somebody when I met them drunkenly at a party or drunkenly off of MySpace. And it was the catalyst of the hookup that was like, well, that person was like funny enough, I guess, when I was talking to them, obviously (laughs) attractive enough that that I uh, had sex with them. So let me give them a call again. And then yeah. then I had long-term relationships. Didn't necessarily, just because I was yeah. looking to hook up at that party, yeah. successfully did that, didn't mean that like they there was no possibility of sure. further, deeper romance. Yeah. Well, there are people out there who did it just for the thrill. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's what I'm saying. I think that sites like Tinder and Bumble, which is a, it's similar to Tinder, except unlike Tinder, where if you match with somebody, each person has the ability to message one another. Bumble only allows the woman to make the first message, which probably really reduces the amount of penises that you would have to see to go back to our other theme of the show. Well, because like, what's the deal with that? I, again, I've, I haven't dated in the true age of like dating internet, but I have plenty of friends on Facebook who talk about it at like ad nauseum, and and it's for a high go- button for that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and and for good reason because again, like they're trying to like you know point out the problem, get people to like shout it down, people to do like interesting viral things to make dudes on OKCupid not be such a holes. But like, what is it about these men? Or and maybe women do it too, where like they find OkCupid or these other dating sites to just be okay, safe spaces for them to just be total jerks. Though I'm not an expert in the jerk space, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I when I would go to meet somebody off of any of these dating sites, compared to when meeting people, you know, quote unquote, real life, I would find that if I was having a bad time on a date, that I wouldn't actually continue with the date fully. I would stop it in the middle and be like hey, I'm out. Like, I'm not having a good time. Because they were strangers. I think there's two things that make it easy for people to be, uh, expedite their negativity. Is one, you don't have a direct connection to the person that you're interacting with. Now with Tinder, it does connect, like show you who your Facebook friends are. And there is some accountability there. But ultimately, you can just write off the fact that you might never talk to this person again. So it doesn't really matter if you're nasty to them. There's no real repercussion, except for knowing that you're a terrible person in your heart which is pretty big repercussion. (laughs) The other thing is that um, I think, especially with apps like Tinder that feel more like a a game or something that's more temporary, you you didn't have to take the time to fill out a profile. You didn't have to, it it aggregates your photos from Facebook. There's really little organization or curation that you have to do if you don't want to. So you have less invested in it, which means that if somebody's rude to you or you're just in a sour mood, you can really disregard that interaction because you didn't invest any time into the platform 
Sure. Where I think OK Cupid's a little bit different. When somebody's mean on OK Cupid, like I think that they're a bad person in their heart. Yeah. Because like you had to take a lot of time to fill out that profile <laughs> and answer all of those stupid questions to even get to the point where like you were being like aggregated and visible to other people. Yeah. Which means if you took that much time and investment just to be mean. But I think that that's, that's what changes it. <laughs> it changes our mentalities compared to like in the real world. However... I was recently told uh, a story by a friend of mine who was continuously asked out in person and online from the same person that, you know, asked out on a date, asked out on a date and, you know, said, no, I'm not interested. And was like, well, who do you think you are? Like immediately was confronted. Yeah. And so I don't, again, like I think that the online world just amplifies everything that's happening offline. Mm. I remember... Many a times, I had an ex-boyfriend once when I rejected him, yelled to a whole party, well, I made out with two girls hotter than you anyway. That didn't happen on the internet. That happened in real life in front of all of my friends. Sometimes I think that we as a society want to believe that the internet is this thing that's pushing us to be negative because we don't want to take responsibility for maybe how crappy we are or maybe how insensitive we can be. I think that's totally fair. It's not even just like insensitive and crappy, but I think that, you know, truly some people just want to watch the world burn. Some people just want to start shit and like rile things up. And that's not, it's not a person to person nefariousness. It's just a a general like fuckery. Yeah. Like, so for instance, um, like we're even mean to robots. Microsoft had that teen chat bot and people, it was learning from what people were saying to it. And like within an entire, I guess one day, it took, oh, yeah. it took the bot, <laughs> they turned the bot into a misogynist Holocaust denier. Yeah. like, <laughs> But it, just because, like for no other reason than to just like, they were given Eden of like chatbot and they burnt it all down. It's definitely human nature to test the limits of something. And I think that that's what's been happening with the internet. The internet has come and it is created such an immediate impact in all of our lives and I think that it is human nature to test the limit and usually when we're testing things most of the time in a negative way like when a waiter puts on your plate and says it's hot you touch it because you just want there's no good that can come of that either the plate's stone cold and you know that that waitress is a liar or you burn yourself (laughs) you burn yourself like it's like watching children when you you just see they they just keep being bad to see what the limit is. And the problem historically with the internet is that there's been no limit. There's been no wall that happens that can push people back. And I think that where we're starting to see like the users are starting to police themselves. Think about how many thoughtful and sensitive conversations have happened out of something negative that has happened online. I've seen television shows in the 70s that would say (laughs) some really heinous things. And there was no forum or platform for anybody to raise their hand and say, this isn't okay. Or even, like, to have, to, like, see other other like-minded people in the same space. So let's say that you're a kid in the 70s and you see some heinously racist shit on TV and you feel uncomfortable about it. But because the TV and media in general, like the white-run media, is the only place that you're really like getting out, outside input because outside of your family and neighbors, you probably aren't talking to a kid about this kind of stuff anyway in the 70s. Um, 
you don't know that there are like-minded people out there who also feel weird about it. True. So you don't get to have that communal spirit of being like, hey, you know what, guys? Maybe this isn't so cool. We should stop doing it. I genuinely believe that a lot of the like civil unrest that we're experiencing right now in this country, which is not new, um, but it has become more prevalent because we can see it online at any time, all of the time. There's also one other more sinister reason that the internet might be becoming a more positive place. And sinister in terms of financially viable, which is it's bad for consumerism and capitalism to have negative spaces. The reason why Walmart has a greeter to say hello to you when you walk into terrible ass Walmart (laughs) is so you immediately feel good about your experience. If Twitter's a negative space and Facebook's a negative space and Instagram becomes a negative space, who wants to pay for advertising dollars in places where people don't want to go and don't want to invest their time? So there's a large push from these platforms from people who want to spend marketing dollars to make the platforms a more communal, jovial, happy place to be. I want to say, and there goes the democracy of the internet. <laughs> but but that makes it sound maybe like I want all these assholes floating to the top. I don't. I, no, it's, I'm sorry. Assholes don't float to the top. Pieces of shit do. Okay. <laughs> this is the, the weird balance that we have to strike. It was a success that Leslie Jones got uh, her harasser kicked off of Twitter. Was that decision based off of the morality of its users or was it based off of the potential of losing marketing mm-hmm. dollars? And this becomes this, this is where when people decide to opt out of social media or the internet and decide mm-hmm. that it's a space that does X or it's not a real place, mm-hmm. these places are still going to exist. Yeah. And without any kind of critical conversation about the places we want them to be, it allows people with money to dictate those how those places will become. I don't know, but that kind of is something I want because I don't want to go to a negative space. And it's because humans can't seem to police themselves. Money has to police them. And so it is kind of like, would I rather have a Wild West or would I rather have a, a West World, which I actually don't want either. So <laughs> it, become, it, just, yeah. it just becomes such a complicated conversation in terms of what is a positive space and who gets to control that and gets to decide what that should look like. I mean, really, the only safe space I want on the internet is like Hulu in my bed. <laughs> the safest space of all. Yeah. <laughs> With that, Courtney, thank you for talking yeah. to me about the the history of the the internet, young and old, <laughs> mean and nice. <laughs> One more time, where can people find you online if they if they choose to? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at IceKermSocially. <laughs> we'll put that online. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and you should listen to Courtney's podcast. Yeah, it is called Double Exposure. You can find us online at doubleexposuremn.com or on Twitter at two movies. That's T-W-O-M-N. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. You can find us on Twitter at and the internet and on the blog at layintheinternet.com. You can also find the show on facebook.com slash layintheinternet. Also, help other people discover this podcast by rating Lay in the Internet on iTunes.